Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and this is your October version of the AJT highlights. I'd like to welcome everybody. As usual, we have uh, Dr. Roz Manon from the University of ne Nebraska. And our guest today is our, um, our AJT fellow, Carrie Thiessen, who is a just started as a junior faculty in transplant surgery at the University of Wisconsin. And so today we'd like to welcome you guys. Today we will be um, going over five articles that are uh, going to appear in the October issue of AJT. I'm going to list them. First two are going to be reviewed by Carrie. The first one is entitled Single Stage Log Segment, Long Segment Tracheal Transplantation um, by Gendon et al. Then the second one is Perspectives of Solid Organ Transplant Recipients on Medicine Taking. Systematic Review of Qualitative Studies by, by Tang et al. And there's an editorial paired to that. Then uh, Roz will kick off another paper on kidney transplantation, ambient air pollution, and post-transplant outcomes among kidney transplant recipients uh, by Feng et al. And uh, with a paired editorial. And then the next paper Roz will review is entitled Recipient Sex and Estradiol Levels Affect Transplant Outcomes in an Age-Specific Fashion by Maina Sono et al. And um, Roz actually was the co-author of the editorial for that for this paper. And then I'm going to finish off the, uh, the podcast with a paper entitled Correcting the Sex Disparity in Meld Sodium by Wood et al. Uh, with an editorial from Kwong's group, Stanford. So a lot of uh, different topics here. So let's get started. Carrie, would you uh, take us away with the, the first article? Sure. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking the editorial board of AJT for creating this fantastic editorial fellowship program. And I'm honored to be joining the podcast today. So I'm going to be starting by talking about Eric Gendon and his colleagues from Mount Sinai, their article, Single Stage Long Segment Tracheal Transplantation. So in this article, uh, Gendon et al. report the first successful single stage long segment tracheal transplant in a human. And uh, as a surgeon, I can't help but to emphasize how impressive and groundbreaking this case really is. Uh, as the authors note, long segment, so greater than six centimeter tracheal defects, have long been an intractable challenge for clinicians, resulting in serial procedures and very poor quality of life for affected patients. Approaches to address this issue have ranged from surgical slide tracheoplasty to two-stage tracheal transplant requiring initial implantation of the arm for neovascularization with a radical pedicle, uh, to attempted tissue engineering with stem cells on uh, biocompatible scaffolds. So the key innovation that made this transplant possible was the author's recognition of the importance of preserving the esophagus in continuity with the trachea to maintain the tracheoesophageal complex's vascular network, uh, which is supplied by the tracheoesophageal branch, the inferior thyroid artery. So excuse me, but I'm going to geek out as a surgeon a little bit and just go into a few of the surgical details. So the tracheal procurement involved on-block resection of the trachea, the donotracheal esophagus, with the thyroid gland and infrahyoid muscles, preserving the carotid artery, superior thyroid artery, inferior thyroid arteries, and the internal jugular veins. And then prior to implantation, the donor esophagus was split vertically, mucosic-sized, uh, leaving the esophageal muscle and vascular network intact. And then the vascular reconstruction in the recipient included anastomosis of the donor lingual arteries to the recipient's superior thyroid arteries, 
the donor inferior thyroid artery to the recipient transverse cervical artery, and the right donor facial vein to the recipient uh, superior thyroid vein, and then finally the left donor internal jugular vein to the recipient internal jugular vein. And then the superior tracheal anastomosis were left partially open to allow for the endotracheal tube and then serial postoperative bronchoscopy monitoring. And the authors note that one of the problems that's really uh, confounded tracheal transplant has been uh, the uh, preservation of the tracheal ciliated epithelium, which is essential for clearing the trachea uh, of the mucus that's produced. And they found that in this case, the trachea mucosa was partially sloughed following ischemic injury as expected, and then it repopulated within three weeks. And then within three months, uh, the transplanted trachea had uh, ciliated epithelium that met criteria for chimerism with 85% of the cells from the recipient. So, you know, this recipient received their uh, transplant. They were extubated on uh, post-op day six and uh, then proceeded to have what sounds like a remarkable recovery and is being followed up in clinic. So uh, moving on to a discussion of a few points for consideration. One of the things that I noted was that you know, the postoperative monitoring regimen was very intensive, initially with twice daily transdomal bronchoscopies and continued with twice monthly transtracheal endoscopies after discharge. And so um, as this procedure becomes more widespread and you know, proof of principle has been um, met that the uh, esophageal uh, tissue remains well perfused, the, the ciliated epithelia is uh, repopulating. I'll be interested to see how that monitoring protocol evolves over time and if they think that such intensive monitoring is required for all patients moving forward. Um, the accompanying editorial by Simran uh, Randawa and G. Alex Patterson notes that the process of development from idea to laboratory research to clinical practice in this case was really extensive and incredibly impressive. And uh, there are only some aspects of this that are hinted at in the article. For example, the authors mention in passing that a series of procurements without the intent of transplant was undertaken to prepare for the procedure. And uh, I recall one of the most interesting conference talks that I heard was Linda Sandalis describing all of the logistical and planning considerations that were involved in her work to do the first hand transplants in the United States. And you know, I and I think everyone else who have an interest in surgical information, uh, innovation rather, would find it really fascinating to read a follow-up article by the authors describing their process of innovation in greater detail. And as a bioethicist, I would also find it particularly interesting to hear more about how they approached both uh, the donor family and the recipient uh, to get informed consent for the procedures. A bit of an aside, but I noticed that the donor was a prior renal transplant recipient, which I found very interesting. Uh, a study by John Marola and his colleagues in 2016 found that nearly 40% of individuals on the transplant waitlist thought that their condition precluded donation of any kind. And to my knowledge, a similar study had not been conducted on transplant recipients. But I think that this is a good reminder to all of us in the transplant community to talk to our patients and to educate them that they may be eligible to be organ donors. And then finally, I think the authors note that tracheal procurement may not be possible with heart or lung procurement. And you know, if tracheal transplant becomes more common, there are obviously a large number of logistical and ethical issues that would need to be addressed to develop a more robust trachea, trachea allocation system.
Thank you, Carrie. Um, you know, I know this is just an N of one, but got to start somewhere, right? And I was wondering, um, I'm really glad you were on this as a surgeon to kind of go over the surgical anatomical issues. It, it does seem, would you agree, that the inclusion of the esophagus in the vascularized bed was the real difference between success and, and failure of previous approaches? Is that is that what I'm gleaning from this? As a abdominal transplant surgeon, <laughs> my understanding is that's really one of the critical innovations of this procedure. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting to see. It's very conventional immunosuppression like you would for any other vascularized transplant. So that's... Um, sort of kind of interesting to me. And I also was captured, you know, the, the notion of the donor being a prior kidney transplant was interesting to me. And, and they certainly, you know, it just says, oh, his family was consented for donor procurement, but it would be sort of an interesting follow-up too to talk about, you know, that process where they were saying the family, you know, you're an organ donor, but we're also looking to do this composite tissue um, allograph from you. And it is impressive. It's nice. The drawings are fantastic. If you like anatomy, it's really nicely done. Kudos to Mount Sinai's transplant program. I was, I was curious too, maybe Carrie, what you brought up the ethics. Um, whenever I kind of think about the VCA, when it involves like a hand or face that, you know, these are some of the ethical debates and immunosuppression, same thing with uterine transplant or that these aren't technically life-saving transplants, but obviously clearly quality of life uh, in, improving. In, in this case, the tracheal transplant is sort of in that bridge of, of, of that, right? Like it, I know these, these patients suffer very poor quality of life with their trachea and they, they, their survival is probably diminished because of their tracheal issue stenosis or atresia. I'm wondering if you th the ethical ethical issues moving forward, are they less so than like a standard hand or face transplant? What, what do you think? I think they may actually be more than a standard hand or face transplant, because if you procure a hand or a face from a donor, you're not competing with other life-saving organs, mm. which yeah. this would. And so I think there would need to be a very prolonged series of discussions about how to manage that balance between use of life-saving organs versus the use of, you know, significant improvements in quality of life. Yeah, sure. No, like thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, great. All right. Well, um, more to come there, I'm sure, down the road. We're excited to see that develop and unfold. So let's move into the, um, the systematic review for uh, medicine taking. I thought that was really interesting. Okay, so next paper is by James Tang and his colleagues, uh, mostly in Australia, called Perspectives of Solid Organ Transplant Recipients on Medicine Taking, Systematic Review of Qualitative Studies. So Tang and his colleagues performed a systematic review of all of the qualitative studies that assessed uh, solid adult solid organ transplant recipient attitudes and beliefs about taking medication, not only immunosuppression, but also prescriptions for other conditions. Their review identified 119 articles from 24 countries, encompassing a sample of 2,901 patients. They then proceeded by taking all of the patient quotes from these studies, collected them, and reanalyzed them to identify six common themes. Two of the themes were categorized as barriers to medication taking. So these two themes were medication as a threat to identity and ambitions and navigating through uncertainty and distrust. And then some aspects of the third theme, which was recalibrating to normal post-transplant 
were um, identified as also potentially negatively impacting medication taking. In contrast, three themes were categorized as positively impacting patients' medication taking. And these three themes were alleviating treatment burden, gaining and seeking confidence, and preserving graft survival. This article is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Eyal Shemesh and Diane Lapointe-Rudeau. Shemesh and Lapointe-Rudeau emphasize that Tang's article is invaluable in exposing transplant providers to the patient's voice. However, they correctly point out that both the source studies and this review suffer from selection bias that significantly limits the generalizability, generalizability of the results. Most of the source studies did not include the most non-adherent patients in their samples and thus may underreport or omit concerns that lead to non-adherence with medication taking. And I would add that it's especially unlikely that the studies in the sample included patients who experienced a severe complication, for example, rejection or graft loss due to medication non-adherence. Research may, researchers may have assumed that these populations would be unwilling to participate in a study and uh, may have been hesitant to approach them in a study if they had even thought about conducting these kinds of studies. However, I would point out that qualitative research has recently included populations that might have similarly once been thought to be inaccessible. So parents who refused a request to allow their brain-dead child to become a deceased donor, uh, that was done by Anita Weiss, potential living donors who opted out of donation. It was work that I did with Dr. Kolkarni at Yale. And then potential donors who were determined to be ineligible to donate by Peter Reese and his colleagues at UPenn. So that's to say that with thoughtful and sensitive recruitment methods and study design, populations that may have once seemed unengageable uh, can sometimes be partially engaged to collect some of this essential information. Shemesh and Lapointe-Rudeau also highlight the heterogeneity of the population included in the review. So it included all solid organ types, multiple countries, multiple ages. And they rightly note that the heterogeneity can obscure key concerns for particular subgroups. And I'll just mention a few subgroups that I really was thinking about as I was reading this review. So one was looking at the differences between individuals who received a living donor transplant versus those who received a deceased donor transplant. They had different views, particularly if they lived with their donor. Another was teenagers under the age of 18 who were excluded from the study, although there's a large amount of evidence that adolescence is one of the riskiest times for non-adherence post-transplant. And then in addition, given the great variations in medication cost burden between different healthcare systems, it would have been interesting to see more details about how financial concerns varied across the 24 countries included in the sample. So these limitations, um, I think, merely highlight how much work needs to be done. One other consideration is that the transplant community really focuses on medication non-adherence, and this is a great first step, but there are many other ways in which our patients may be non-adherent, such as missing clinic appointments, skipping laboratory testing, not coming to the hospital for evaluation for potential complication when advised to do so. It's often presumed that the medication non-adherence and the reasons for medication non-adherence correlate with non-adherence in these other aspects of care, but that's an assumption that really merits further study, merits further study, and there may be other considerations that play into why patients are not following up on some of these other items. So based on their thematic analysis and synthesis of other uh, literature reviews, the authors conclude by recommending methods to support patients in taking their medications. These strategies include integrating medicine into daily life, 
providing practical information about medications, facilitating shared decision-making, and identifying and providing community-based support. Many of these things are beginning to be integrated or have already been integrated by many transplant centers in their care for recipients. But in line with uh, Shemesh and LaPointe-Rudeau's appeal to the importance of hearing the patient's voice, it would have been really fascinating to learn what the patients in these studies would have proposed as strategies to improve medication adherence. Great summary of a, of a very thorough review and a really, um, I thought, very thoughtful editorial by, um, again, the Sinai group in terms of what is the patient voice and how do we, you know, sometimes I, I sort of feel uncomfortable. I, I appreciate that Alice and Tong and her group are experts in endpoints, and so they really study these kind of concepts, but I agree with you. You sort of want to know. I feel like I'm telling the patient what I think they should do, and I always like to hear what they think they should have done or, or how we can make the situation better. So I concur with you that that table four was a really nice outline of different strategies and the, and the way these strategies are, are defined, but um, it would have, you know, it's hard. And I mean, these are, you know, the, the complexity of so many studies, I think, and the combination of different types of patients makes it a bit difficult to sort of say, okay, well, where do we begin? And those were all very high level recommendations as well. If you talk to patients, you may wind up with something as simple as give everyone a pill box. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> simple, straightforward. Yeah, keep it simple. <laughs> well, thank you, Carrie. Those uh, you did a great job on reviewing those two papers. So I think without further ado, we'll um, turn it over to Roz for we'll air keep pollution. going. We'll air keep pollution. going. Air pollution. Um, so this is a paper by Feng et al. Not related to Sandy Feng, I believe, but this is from the Hopkins Surgical. EPI group uh, looking at the ambient air pollution and post-transplant outcomes in kidney transplant patients. So I, I think the exposure to fine particulate matter, particularly what's called PM 2.5 or particulate matter less than 2.5 microns has been studied in a variety of populations. It has been attributed to 4.2 million deaths in 2015. It's associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular cancer and infectious deaths. And several studies have now associated these elevated levels of these small particulates as associated with kidney disease and a decline in kidney function. And this paper doesn't really emphasize this, but I, I, there are two transplant studies today. One was a, uh, a cohort study in France of about 520 uh, lung transplant recipients, and they had their uh, pulmonary functions tested at six months, and there was a strong correlation with reduced uh, force vital capacity and percent of that, uh, de depending on pollutants, and they map the pollutants based on available biomaps from, the, from France. And there's also another study, and so that was lung function early post-transplant, and you'd say, well, that's the lung, no big deal. Of course, they're being exposed. But another more broad study was done in cardiac transplants where they did a large UNOS data uh, registry study from 1987, including about 22,000 heart transplants, again, showing a correlation for an increased hazard ratio of patient death associated for every 10 microgram per millimeter cubed of these, of these small particulates. And that was published in the Journal of the American uh, College of Cardiology. So, this paper really adds to the to the knowledge, and, and I would say maybe not so much the understanding, but this again, um, this association of of 
of what would be off what we might consider off target effects of inhaled pollution. Um, and their methods are very similar to the cardiology, the Jack paper from 2019. They this time used SRTR data for about six years, linked it to the USRDS to have uh, graph failure and, and uh, patient mortality data. They aligned it with American Community Survey zip code data. And then they were utilizing NASA data, specifically NASA has these maps where they're called socioeconomic data and application center CDAC maps. And they actually have uh, moderate resolution imagery and several other spectrophotometry recordings where they were able to align those maps to the zip codes. And then they uh, assess the mean uh, PM 2.5, those 2.5 less than particles at each zip code per year, and then associated that with the kidney transplant recipient based on the recipient zip code. And they, there is a lot of covariates, as you can imagine, that they included, but the primary exposure here was really um, the PP 2.5. And I'll skip to the findings pretty quickly, but I'd encourage you to look at the results. I think figure three highlights the key results that first and foremost, in about 87,000 patients, the, uh, only about 12% of the zip codes exceeded the EPA threshold of 12 micrograms per millimeter cubed of these PM 2.5 particles. So maybe that's good news, but you know you don't wanna be in the 12%. And recipients that had higher uh, particle load were typically non-white, had lower education on dialysis longer, and actually had longer cold time of their donors. In figure one panel A, you can see that there's a significant correlation. The risk of delayed graft function rises as your PM 2.5 concentration increases. For every 10 uh, microgram per millimeter cube, there was a 1.7 fold increase in DGF. This was more correlated with people that had longer cold time, as you can imagine, and hypertension, really almost a linear relationship. They saw this a very similar relationship in those with living donors. So it wasn't necessarily uh, the ischemic ask the uh, perspective, but they also saw even in living donors where you're not expecting DGF. Um, and they also noted that there was a dissociation between where the donor's zip code came from, uh, that this really tracked more with the recipient. Uh, additionally, there was a 1.27 fold increase in acute rejection when you got above a level of 10 concentration. There was not an association with death-censored graph failure, so maybe that's good. Um, and there was a linear relationship, though, though not as strong as the DGF and rejection, but about a 110% uh, uh, increase in all-cause mortality associated as particle concentration goes up. Um, and the deaths were predominantly associated with infection, less so cardiovascular death and cancer. And they did a sensitivity analysis looking at the, the pollutant level the year before transplant and show that that didn't have any impact. So what is this telling us? Well, certainly if you use this zip code level data um, at an incident point of when the transplant was performed, you can associate that to potentially negative outcomes. And these are certainly not something I think we typically have in our metrics. We don't think of this, you know, in the KPDI or KDRI score of the donor, for example, and it's not included in the calculation in terms of recipient. You could argue that the time of transplant zip code reflects where the transplant was done, but um, by and large, not the lifetime exposure. So it's a point incident. 
Although I would argue that, you know, areas that are typically of high pollution rate were proper or high density uh, areas. And then some rural areas where there's a fairly extensive um, agricultural uh, deposition of particles. There's a great accompanying editorial by one of our edit editorial fellows, Ross Griscoll, who will actually be on the podcast ne next month, teamed with Rachel Patzer and David Axelrod. And, and they point out, you know, is this cause or correlation? Um, and it's a nice editorial that points out that Pollution um, contributes to health inequality by two mechanisms. Either there is a differential exposure based on where you live or potentially a differential susceptibility that, you know, populations at greater risk uh, become at greater risk because of lack of access to health care, the quality of health care, the quality of their living conditions, um, identifying this, the social determinants of health and impact affect transplant. You know, what are the solutions? Um, the editorial suggests, you know, more impact on by transplant centers to be aware of these factors. Um, although I'll tell you that it's certainly not in our workups um, and really uh, putting more pressure potentially on on policy policymakers, particularly in patients in high risk areas. You know, what can we do as caregivers probably recommending, you know, continued access to medical care and maintaining a healthy lifestyle? Um, and I don't know if this would be powerful enough since now it's been shown in two different organ recipients um, in the U.S. whether regulators might consider including the recipient's home zip code and PM 2.5 as a potential high-risk metric for poor outcomes. Yeah, I, I thought this was just really interesting. I wasn't sure after, you know, reading through it what the like you mentioned, kind of the next steps, like what is this? Wow, it's an interesting finding and it's been seen before, but what are the, what can we do about it or how can it impact, you know, patient care management, et cetera? I, I'm, I'm not quite sure that makes me think that, you know, these patients in these areas should be like wearing masks and stuff. <laughs> to, well, to, and, uh, and, you know. and, and that sounds like a thought, but the issue really is, is it cumulative exposure? Yeah, right. um, you know, somebody did a study like in eons ago of people that grew up in New York City like me who like lost their like low frequency hearing because they were always on the subway and they heard the screeching of the subway. And so I don't I live in a, you know, an, an urban area now, but we certainly don't have that noise pollution. But it's hard to correlate the current with the previous. So it's possible and it is possible that individuals that live in these highly polluted areas. I mean, if you look at Fran at the at the lung paper, you'll see where most of the pollution is in France, mostly located around, you know, Paris, you know, very high urban density areas. And then some places you're like, wow, what is that because of agriculture? Is that because of inversions because of the environment? So I think it's a very interesting area. I don't I, I think it's going to need more work in terms of, you know, policy and activity. And again, I think most transplant programs in a practical sense aren't really aware of this relationship. So hopefully getting this on the podcast might stimulate our listeners to think about the environment that they're in and, the, and where their patients are coming and, you know, identifying if there's a strategy that they can include. And maybe it is, uh, we can't get people to wear masks with COVID. I'm not sure they're going to do it due to pollution, but um, I'm, all, I'm all in, Josh. Well, I was curious. Too. I mean, this certainly needs to be looked at in other organs, particularly lung transplant. And, uh, but just, just to see if there's an independent effect here in other organs too, because 
then it'd be more compelling as, as a as an association. Right. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah. the French study is is this cis clad group who um, it was a very early observation in the first six months, but we don't know the long term outcome of those patients. And certainly, yeah. this research, this the methods for this paper were very similar to the cardiology, the Jack paper, and. Uh, certainly a very um, interested party could probably go back, read both papers, and if they have the finesse of linking these registries, could certainly uh, go ahead and do that for lung and liver. Yeah, exactly. Because the liver eventually yeah. is downstream from everything, so it takes a hit. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, let me get on to the next right. papers because yeah. I want to make sure you have time. So my next paper is by Mayasono and colleagues from Stefan Tullius's lab. This is a, um, a combo paper of both some clinical observations and then attempts to utilize a preclinical transplant model to evaluate the impact of estradiol and uh, transplant outcomes. So this was also a recently featured paper in the AJT Journal Club. So apologies to those of you that heard the very detailed presentation. Uh, I'm going to do more of a 10,000-foot overview. You know, work by prior investigators and colleagues of mine like Beth Foster and Ruth Sapir Prashadzi from McGill have shown higher graph failure rates in, in kids versus older recipients. And indeed, females more likely than males when they're younger seem to do a bit worse. Um, and when the male is a don when the donor is a male, not so much when there's a female donor. And so there's been some additional studies that have confirmed that younger female graph survival is worse than in younger male, and older females seem to do a bit worse than older males. So this paper um, it did, did another SRTR data uh, assessment to show that recipient graph survival was better in older recipients than in younger recipients. Again, that kind of confirmed those older papers by, by Beth Foster's uh, team. And they also identified in this paper about a twofold increase in acute rejection, young versus old. Now, this isn't new news. You know, we have always thought that, you know, the younger recipient is, you know, the non-adherent teenager, and we know that graph failure is higher, but this dissociation with uh, with sex at different ages seems kind of interesting. And so this group uh, sought to delve into the differences in female mice. They didn't examine the differences in male mice, so we don't, I can't talk about that, but they had a model for female mice. They looked at young mice, which are two to three months old, compared them to old mice, which are 18 months, believe it or not, because the lifespan of the mouse is, is relatively much shorter than a human. And then they also did an ovariectomy for, for young mice, and they measured estradiol levels just to document that young mice have a, a level of about 14 micrograms per mil, old mice 2.1, which is their menopause, and then ovariectomies mice are, are very, very low, if not zero. Um, I will cut to the chase by saying that for the for the research from the basic side, they did a, a very stringent skin transplant model in figure three. They used MHC disparate grafts into female mice that were male donors. So you had minor antigen discompatibility, but also uh, major. And so when you do a major graph like that, your graph survival is maybe 10 or 12 days. And what they showed is that naive young female mice uh, rejected their grafts faster than uh, male mice, and that the overectomized mice, meaning mice without as much estradiol, had a graft survival very similar uh, in, of young mice to those of male mice. And you didn't really see this relationship uh, in the older recipient mice that whether you overectomized them or not, 
the female mice that were older had uh, comparable survival as the overectomized mice and, and not too significantly different than male. And this was not affected by them giving CTLA-4-IG or bilatisap. And they actually repeated this in a vascularized heart transplant model, which is shown in figure 3F and 3G, uh, again, and show um, very similar observations that the young female mice, when they're overectomized and their estradiol levels are relatively low, have a better survival um, with no effect in older mice. So the rest of the paper is really dissecting this mechanism. Um, they identify a number of observations. They show that overectomized young mice have less CD4 and CD8 positive T cells and actually have an aversion in their peripheral compartment of more CD8s than CD4. That um, overectomized mice um, have dampened um, pro-inflammatory TH1 and TH17 responses and actually have an augmented regulatory T cell response, which I thought was somewhat interesting. So it looks like, you know, inflammation patterns go down and in, uh, in, uh, pro um, or a dampening processes like more Tregs go up. And they also actually did some functional assessment of these cells to show that there is a mechanism. And so they took out peripheral uh, T cells from transplanted mice that have been overectomized. And they show that there were reduced CD4 T cell responses and mixed lymphocyte response. And that was shown, I believe, in figure six. They then go on and do some other more complex studies looking at CD4 T cell subsets and looking at cell culture with higher levels of estradiol going from what they call estrus to menopause to uh, pregnancy where they have quite high um, uh, estradiol levels. And again, they seem that there is a reduction in TH1. There's an increased effect in TH1 when you go up with estradiol except when you get to the very high concentrations and though they call it dose response and really no impact on TH17 and then also an impact of a reduction on Treg. So again, these sort of moderate levels of estradiol seem to augment the immune response and reduce regulatory T cells. They finally do a series of hormone replacement experiments within overectomized young mice. And, and again, using these different levels to show that overectomized mice had the best outcome from a skin transplant. And as you go up in dose, you, you kind of decrease the level, you, you decrease graft survival, but super high levels, which they don't really talk a lot about this. I call it super high, but it, it is fairly high. It's the pregnancy level. Those animals seem to have really reasonable survival. And I look pretty hard at this paper again today to say, well, you know, is that something about the level of the hormone or something about the pregnancy. But needless to say, there is a differential effect of estradiol, both in vitro and in vivo. You know, you may ask why this might happen. And there actually are estrogen alpha receptors on C4T cells. And certainly in, in other autoimmune mice models like autoimmune encephalitis, allergic encephalitis, you can show reduced um, TH17 and TH one responses and that estrogens reduce fast ligand and compete apoptosis. There's an editorial accompanying this paper that was co-authored by myself and Mandy, Mandy predominantly, just reminding us about the implications of sex as a biological variable and that NIH does have a funding policy requiring you to talk about that in your research design and your analysis. In vertebrate animal and human studies, it's important to point out, and this is a great example where 
there are differences in female versus males, and, and you have to take your results in context. There's another uh, review paper in acute kidney injury, actually authored by my daughter, but not me, um, that talks about the same issue of, of the responses in female mice in, in acute kidney injury really are disparate, and you have to sort of take that into consideration when you're doing your models. So I think that's all I'd, I'd like to say today about this paper. There's also a letter to the editor by Beth Foster and, and Ruth Sapir-Pashadi pointing out a, a bevy of their work that was really not recognized um, during the review process or in that um, in the, the Mayasono paper and just reminding people that that this seems like a new concept, but it, it really has been around for a little bit of time. And now we're just finally getting to the crack the code and figure out what's going on. We hope. Great, thank, thanks, Roz. Um, maybe just in interest of time, I move into the last paper, which deals with a slightly uh, a different aspect of this uh, gender difference, which is um, sex disparity in meld sodium in, in liver transplantation. Uh, this is a really important paper, and this is, um, we've long known that uh, over the last decade, decade and a half, that after the meld and the meld sodium implementation, that women are, are still disadvantaged than men on the liver transplant wait list. They're more likely to die, more likely to be removed from the wait list for being too sick, and less likely to receive a, a transplant. The reasons for this are not entirely clear, but they seem to circle around the fact that women have lower serum creatinines um, due to lower muscle mass and then hence lower MELD scores for the same level of renal dysfunction. Um, there is some other data on height being um, height differences being the issue and also um, the fact that women are generally smaller and may not have access to um, the organ transplant pool compared to men. But needless to say, there is a disparity here that needs to be solved. It's not a huge disparity or difference, but it's enough that clearly there's a there's a difference. Um, and of course, the um, you know the, the uh, final rule is to make sure that there's fair and equitable organ organ distribution. And so, um, what this group decided to do was to um, develop a, a different model to see if they could uh, approximate women's weightless survival and transplant access to men's by using something called a meld sodium shift. And they compared this to meld sodium and another score called meld grail sodium, which was developed by investigators at Baylor that uh, also seemed to improve on the meld score. And what the meld sodium shift essentially is, is that they're taking, let's say, they use an, a really good example, let's say a meld score of, of 25 for a woman has a 90 day without transplant survival rate of 0.74, where a man, a, a male at the same meld sodium score has a survival rate of 0.766. And so to get the, the female's survival rate to be similar to male, the best way to do this is to move the female up to a meld of 26 um, from 25, which gives them an extra point to approximate the survival to men. And it's very simple. It doesn't involve a lot of complex modeling. It's just a shift in melt sodium. And what this group did is they looked at uh, a long period of time from 2003 to 2019 for the uh, SRTR uh, data and used an LSAM model, which is a typical modeling, to simulate the effect of the, the melt sodium correction for liver allocation on outcomes for men and women on the, on the wait list. 
I'll go right to kind of the, the main findings. So um, when they looked at, um, they basically compared meld sodium. Oh, I should mention they also compared meld sodium MDRD, which is an EGFR equation instead of using creatinine. Meld sodium, meld sodium MDRD, meld sodium, meld grail sodium, and meld sodium shift, their model. And if you look at figure one, you can see that the 90 day without transplant survival for all of these models based on you know, this patient population, this, this uh, high patient population over the last 16 years, you can see that meld sodium gives some preference to males, whereas meld sodium MDRD actually gives slight preference to females in terms of transplant-free survival. Um, and then meld grail sodium and meld sodium shift seem to make them more similar to each other. And so then they applied these um, these four models to an LSAM, which does have its issues, but they were using it under the acuity circle allocation system, which is really important because they're testing it under what the system that we currently have. And they found that actually the um, sodium shift was uh, in, in both in transplant rates and mortality rates um, allowed women to approximate men in terms of transplant rate and uh, dying on the wait list better than any of the other models coming within almost a very small percentage points of, of men um, when, when using this um, meld sodium shift adjustment. Now, one key factor here that um, they described is that they, they used this, um, the, the way they did this is they did not um, censor for transplant. So this was this model was actually used, but they're kind of pure trans, they're pure weightless survival with, without a transplant survival um, to kind of look at the natural course rather than using trans, having to censor for transplant. So that's a little bit different than other models. So th this, uh, I think, really is a nice step forward in getting closer to correcting the sex disparities. And the uh, there's a nice editorial from Allison Kwong and... Um, and Jennifer Lai and, and Ray Kim, who are who have published a lot in this space. In fact, um, literally a few weeks ago in, in gastroenterology, this same group published um, something very similar called the MELD 3.0, which um, incorporates albumin and female sex into models to improve the um, improve the prediction of weightless mortality. And so you know, the question is, um, should these be implemented into organ allocation decision making? Should this replace meld sodium? You know, is it is it fair to use a, a, a prior population or should we test this moving forward? I do think that this is an important topic. I don't know which model is going to win out, but it's clear that meld and meld sodium um, needs to be needs to be updated. And so I'm sure the liver and intestine committees um, in in UNOS are, are looking at these models to see if this should should replace so that um, we can have you know better fairness now the only thing I'll say is usually when models are updated there's some downside that might be uh, unexpected or unpredicted because they're they're validating these models on a simulation so whenever you put this into real-time practice, it may may have unintended consequences, um, but this is certainly a hot topic, and I think very important. We'll, we'll see what unfolds um, with this with this in terms of organ, uh, liver transplant allocation. I was actually curious, also maybe what what Carrie might have thought about this, given 
um, her interest in, in ethics and and maybe you had some some thoughts on that, Carrie or Roz. I'm like the last person to say anything, but but um, I'll, I'll let Carrie talk about the liver piece and, and certainly. So, Josh, what additional data do you think the committee needs? Do they need to like re go back and recalculate, you know, all prior, you know, patients back from 10 years ago and, and what their outcomes were? I mean, how do you do you have a sense of what's needed to move this like? Work yeah, I quickly? think. I think this is really good work. I think the one by Ray Kim and gastroenterology mm -hmm. um, includes transplant, and they also include, they only looked at the last couple of years okay. of organ transplant, so I think it's more re more recent and re uh, relevant. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot. Of course, this has to go out to public comment if they're proposing this. I think there's, people want to see this happen but then again anytime you change something you really need buy-in from all stakeholders so i i don't know i i i feel like we we wait to get more data it's going to take several several years and then we were disadvantaging women on the list too further so mm -hmm. it's um i feel like something should be done to it to account for this i don't know carrie what do you think I agree that the inequities in the way in which women have access to liver transplants is something that definitely needs to be addressed. And certainly as a fellow, the height difference and size difference was something that we encountered all the time. And that was more obvious to us than these kind of hidden inequities that are built into the way that the meld was calculated. So I think it's really interesting to consider these different models. One question that I have is, if the models transition to something new, what would happen with all the people who are currently on the wait list? And then do they have to get all recalculated mills? And then do they wind up, you know, in a different position than they would have otherwise been? And I think that's kind of a complicated discussion that would need to be had among the transplant community to figure out how to handle that kind of situation. And yeah, I think I actually that... don't know if there's been something, you know, how that's been handled in the past. But when meld sodium came out, um, the thought was it's going to sort of uh, advantage those who were disadvantaged because they they had relatively normal, um, you know, bilirubin and INR and creatinine, but they had, you know, or not normal, but not so deranged that this would push those patients up rather than push others down. So this may have the same effect in kind of increasing uh, women's access by by giving them an, an extra tip to, at least to approximate men, not supersede, but uh, approximate them so they can have similar access uh, to have apples to apples. So it, it is complicated anytime you're, you're bringing something new in, but meld sodium now is six, seven years old. And, and so it may be time for, a, for an update. Anyway, I think, well, this great stuff. So I uh, appreciate um, all of the discussion, the review of the articles, and I'm going to sign off, and we will see you in November. Take care. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.